0: Welcome to FMC Radio, your officially unofficial source for all things Free Methodist. From in-depth discussions with key FMC leaders to daily updates during events like General Conference, we want to keep a consistent stream of information flowing to you regarding where God is leading the Free Methodist Church. I'm your host, Josh Avery. We want to invite you to sit back, relax, and join us on this journey as we learn what it means to be Free Methodist in this episode of the FMC Radio Show. Monday, July 17th, 2017, and we're on episode 17 today. So we've got a lot of 17s going around. The 17th of July, it's this 2017, and episode 17. That means absolutely nothing, but it's kind of cool to say all those 17s. So welcome back uh, to episode 17. And uh, thank you to everyone who started listening this past week. I know that there are tons of new listeners because I'm able to see the statistics. I'm not able to see who you are, but I'm able to see uh, that you're listening. And there were quite a few new people. Maybe you knew Adam or know Adam Smallwood personally, the guy we talked to in the last episode who became a Christian after coming to a free Methodist camp and arrived at the camp as an atheist. Uh, Very interesting story and a great time to be able to sit down with him several weeks ago about a month ago now and speak to him about his story. That's in episode 16. You should go down and listen go back and listen to it if you haven't had the chance yet. Um, today we're going to be doing something a little bit different um, and uh, you may have noticed the title of this episode. That comes from this. It's kind of a quote that comes from a sermon given by Bishop David Roller. And if you're unfamiliar with Bishop David Roller, he is the guy who's of, of each of our three bishops. He's the one bishop who is in charge of the eastern side of the United States and some other countries as well. Um, but he gave a sermon almost exactly two years ago at General Conference. Uh, GC15 in 2015, the General Conference of the Free Methodist Church. And one thing I know, um, one reason, of course, as you guys know, that I started up this podcast was because I realized in the churches that I've been involved in, there were a, a handful, I should even say even more than a handful of people that knew about Free Methodism and had a grasp of what was going on on the bigger scale. But there were even more people that didn't have any idea, Um, and that wasn't for any bad reason necessarily, but the average everyday attender, the average everyday Joe going to a free Methodist church, they didn't really know, and, and still to this day, a lot of them don't know the fullness of what they're a part of. So that's why I started this podcast, and today I wanted to do something a little bit different, something we've never done before here on this show, and that is... Uh, instead of having myself speaking about something later on as our main segment or you know in in um, having an interview with somebody as we have on many of our episodes, I wanted to play for you a sermon. And in this case, the one that was given, by Bishop David Roller in GC17, almost exactly two years ago to this day, Um, and it's about loving our neighbor. And we've all heard about that. We've heard about loving our neighbor, but I think this was one of the most powerful sermons I've heard from him um, and and certainly was one of my favorite sermons of GC15 and really overall that I've ever heard Um, because it really just made me think. And so I will let him talk all about that topic. I mean, I don't need to do a sermon before the sermon. But I do um, want you to know that he is going to mention something about our pets. What if we loved our neighbors as much as we love our pets? And it was kind of one of these moments where when you hear it, it's just like, wow, that's convicting. So to open up, I thought it would be kind of fun to open with a fun segment. And uh, as he's going to mention that as an aside here in his talk, Bishop Roller here in a few moments, um, I wanted to give you the top five dumbest pet items that I could find. These are real items. I know when I when I tell you about these things, you're going to think they're fake. But these are real items that you could go out and buy right now online for your pet. And so I want to tell you about the dumbest, the five top five dumbest items that I could find for you to buy for your pet. These things really exist. The first is, I guess, compared to the others, it's not too bad, but it's a pet high chair. So if you're sitting around the family dinner table and you're wishing, man, I wish uh, you know Scruffy could sit up here with us. That would that would really just make the family complete. You can actually buy a pet high chair. Make sure that dog's right up there, sitting up at it, sitting up at the table as if he were a baby in the family. I think that's the dumbest thing. I'm sorry if you have one, um, but it's kind of stupid. So let's move on to even dumber stuff than that. Number two, the dog bacon bubble blower. You think now that's got to be fake. It doesn't even it sounds like you're just rhyming words here or trying to use alliteration, but the dog bacon bubble blower is is real. So that so these people sat down and they thought, "You know what dogs love? They love chasing bubbles." You know, they do, you blow some bubbles and they run around trying to bite them in the air. That's hilarious. They said, "You know what else they love? They love bacon." So what if we made a bacon blower that blows out the bubbles automatically? And not only that, but like the bubbles smell like bacon. Oh, these dogs are going to love it. So you can (laughs) can literally buy the dog bacon bubble blower. If you want that, you know, it's available online. Go ahead and Google it and you can grab one of those today. Maybe one of those funny things that you could uh, get and put in. um, I think it would be hilarious to put in one of those white elephant gift exchanges. Maybe this Christmas would be a good gift uh, to give to somebody as a joke. Number three, the sexy beast dog perfume. Again, I told you 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 thought I was gonna think I was joking. You know, I, I I told you that that was gonna be what was happening. But again, it's serious. It's really called. It's a perfume called Sexy Beast, and it's not for humans. It's a dog perfume. It's made with nutmeg oils, mandarin, and other spices for that perfect smell. And I don't know. Maybe that attracts the other dogs. I, I don't know. I, I don't really want to know. You think, oh, how much would that be? You know, for a dog cologne, you know, you're gonna put five, $10 down on something like that. I mean, 20, what do you No, it costs 70 bucks for the Sexy Beast dog perfume. This is, <laughs> who's gonna be, who's out there buying this stuff? I mean, again, supply and demand, it doesn't exist if there's not someone out there buying it. I can't believe it. It only gets worse from there. Okay, number four, maybe you're feeling a little bit left out because, oh, the dog bacon bubble blower, the sexy beast dog perfume. What about, I got a cat. I I need something for my cat. Okay, we have something for you. If you've ever sat around your house and you you say, I just really wonder right now, is my cat purring? I'm really just curious about this. Is my cat purring right at this moment? I know a lot of people are sitting around their homes wondering that about their cat. Well, good news, there has been invented the purr detector. It's literally, it's a lighted cat collar that literally lights up. You put it on your cat. It lights up when the cat is purring. Now, if you have a cat, it, it, this is just non, it doesn't make any sense. What, what in the world are they thinking here? <laughs> I mean, does anybody sit around their house and if you're petting the cat, okay, you can feel and you can hear it's purring. Do you nearly need to look across the room and say, oh, good news. Okay, it's lighting up. The cat's purring. I mean, what? I am so sorry to say that these things actually really exist. Number 5. The polish and and I need to spell it out here P A W L I S H. Okay, get the joke paw the paw of an animal, okay, polish. The polish dog nail polish. So, if you didn't think that your your dog's, you know, feet look good enough, you know, yeah, it's, it's missing something. It's missing dog nail polish. It's something that would be good for dogs. I'm going to put that dog nail polish on. And it would be funny if it was called Polish. No, it's not funny. It's horrible. Okay, and then we have, you know what? Here's the bonus one because it's just so horrible. I feel like it's like a train wreck. You can't really get away. You need to keep just looking at it for so long. It's just so horrible. So this is even worse. I think this is just the biggest ripoff here. I mean, we had a ripoff with the Sexy Beast Dog Perfume and the, and the Dog Bacon Bubble Blower. We don't really need those things. But I think this could be, uh, even the purr detector, that's kind of a ripoff. But the Bowlingual Dog Translator, uh, Get the again, it's a, it's a joke about bilingual, bow because bow wow of a dog, okay, you know, nobody's laughing, not even me. Um, I'm sure there's somebody listening to this, just like laughing, thinks it's the most hilarious pun they've ever heard. But the lingual Dog Translator, you have a little app, and it analyzes, analyzes your dog's barks to determine which emotions your dog is feeling so you wonder wow i wonder what that bark meant Did I, was that an angry bark up oh, here it is on the bow dog translator oh he sure is he's happy oh boy it's having a smiley face today what i didn't get if you feel left out about that you say oh i wish i had that for my cat when my cat meows i i always wonder what his emotions are well you could get the meow lingual cat translator so don't feel left out today Um, And these are the kinds of crazy things that people do for their pets. And there are people out there buying it. Maybe somebody listening to this today is really offended. They're like, well, I'm the one who bought the purr detector. And you're just like sitting at home like real mad that I made fun of you. I'm sorry about that. You can send me an email, josh, at bfreemc.org. And we could talk all about how angry you are. Um, But for now, let's just leave it at this is uh, the dumbest list of pet products I've ever heard. And with that being said, let's transition into my good friend, your bishop,
1: my bishop, Bishop David Roller. I sat in a hotel room, TV on, CNN. There was a piece on Muslim Christian anger in the UK. So I switched to Fox. They were talking about anger between the rich and poor over tax policy in this country channel after channel, and they were all about hatred. Finally, I hit the home and garden channel, and they were, they were angry about mold. So, hate motivates, anger sells, I mean, you know that. In fact, hatred is the fuel of the modern world. There's hatred between the Sunni, the Shia, the Sufi, hatred between Muslims and Christians, hatred between Tea Party and moderates, Apple and PC. (laughs) Have have you watched the news lately? I'm sure you have. It's all hatred all the time. Now, hatred is when anger boils over. It's when your amygdala cannot have a rational conversation because you've succumbed to pure rage, pure emotional ecstasy. But we stand apart from the anger. Strangely distanced, aren't we, from the rage of the world? because our defining characteristic as followers of Jesus is the exact opposite of anger, it is love. I found the Bloomberg Channel. They were doing a special on Haiti, I was intrigued. They were trying to say how the country needs jobs, which is true, but the interviewer was interviewing a, a, a Haitian and the Haitian would not say what the correspondent wanted. About jobs. Instead, the Haitian interviewee said, Haiti needs love more than employment. Yeah. Love people. That's the second part of our mission statement. And this is how we will know if we are followers of Jesus or not, right? Love people. This is how we identify ourselves as Wesleyans or not. Love people. Wesley, when they asked him, what is this Christian perfection thing you're always going on and on about? His answer says it begins with God, with love God, and it ends with love people. Here's how he said it. Christian perfection is loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. This implies that no wrong temper, none contrary to love, remains in the soul, and that all the thoughts, words, and actions be governed by pure love. Pure love. The original commandment, though, wasn't really to love people, was it? It was to love your neighbor, Leviticus 19. You've heard that referenced already today. And where did this commandment come from? If you've ever had trouble believing in God then answer me this how could a motley crew of ex-slaves wandering in the Sinai Peninsula how could they ever have invented a God who said love your neighbor as yourself I mean where would that have originated in them that could not have sprung From their experience, these escaping, mistreated, beaten slaves, ex slaves of Pharaoh, could not have just somehow stumbled across unselfish love as their highest command. It doesn't happen, does it? Love of others is not natural, it's not normal. It's contrary to natural law, contrary to what springs from our heart, contrary to the real world. In the real world, krill are eaten by penguins, penguins are eaten by seals, and seals are eaten by orcas. In the real world, grass is eaten by gazelles, and gazelles are eaten by lions. That's the Animal Planet channel, by the way. (laughs) Lions and orcas do not love their neighbors. It's not natural. So go out, friends, buy a gun, get ready to kill someone, because they are coming after you. That's natural. It's a dog-eat-dog world. Wake up and smell the coffee. Maybe I'll start my own cable channel called Angry Bishops. (laughs) To these dusty, desperate Israelites wandering around the peninsula, hungry, thirsty, without a home, God issues this sublime, lofty, incredibly high moral imperative love your neighbor as yourself where does that come from if you think tensions are high today in the Middle East particularly between Palestinians and Jews how do you think these Hebrews felt surrounded huddled in their tents surrounded by the sons of Ishmael Yet God says to them in that context, love your neighbor as yourself. A bit of irony, isn't there, in asking these homeless nomads to love their neighbor as though they had, you know, neighbors. They're always moving. But they didn't understand it that way anyway. I mean, that's not what neighbor meant to them. It didn't mean the, nail, the mailbox next door. The neighbors of the Old Testament, if you, if you go to the Septuagint in Greek, they are called the placion. That's in a Spanish accent. <laughs> Greek with a Spanish accent. They are the placion. And to them, in the Old Testament neighbor, this word placion meant a member of the Hebrew race. To Canadians, it would have sounded like, love other Canadians just as you love yourself. That's what it meant to them. The commandment only made them responsible for the well-being of others like themselves. Even continuing into Jesus' day, this word, placion, did not include foreigners, did not include even Samaritans. So they were understanding that the neighbor was people like themselves. Brother bishops, this is awkward, isn't it? I guess we need to forget our embrace all strategic priority. It turns out that's not what it meant. It meant love your neighbor, meant embrace people like yourself. What are we going to do? Yeah, maybe not done yet, right? That Leviticus passage, Leviticus 19, is quoted in Romans 13. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And whatever other commandment there may be, they're all summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So he takes them and he rams them all down the, the mouth of the funnel and he says they all come out at the other end looking like love your neighbor as yourself. He says the same thing in Galatians 5. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command love your neighbor as yourself and james says a similar thing in the second chapter but notice whatever is quoted here wherever these these brothers quote it it's in the context of summing up the law of fulfilling the commandments this was legalistic loving it was love because you have to And wherever there's a law, there's a way to skirt the law, a way to get around the law. And the way some skirted the implications of Leviticus 19 was to define that word, placion, neighbor, so narrowly that it became meaningless. My neighbor is basically no one. Like, remember that time a religious lawyer came up to Jesus, a teacher of the law, and he says to Jesus, what do I have to do to go to heaven? Pretty good question, right? Jesus says to him, well, you're a religious expert. What's your answer? He says... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. (laughs) Jesus says that's pretty good. That is what it says, isn't it? Do that, and you will live forever. So far, so good. Everybody's happy. Jesus has affirmed their understanding of Leviticus 19. But then the lawyer has to push a little harder. Doesn't know when to leave well enough alone. Must have been a young lawyer. Because old lawyers know don't ask questions to which you don't know the answer. You know, God's like that. Never ask him to show you who your neighbor is unless you want to wreck your Tuesday night. (laughs) Jesus says, you know that road that goes from Jerusalem down to Jericho? And the religious lawyer says, yeah. Jesus says, you know that one spot where all the The big rocks are? Yeah. You know that that bandits, thieves, tend to congregate there? Yeah. Jesus said, well, it turns out that one time a man was walking down that road. He got to that spot where the big rocks are. Sure enough, the thieves jump out. They grab him. They beat him. They rip off his clothes. They steal everything he has. They beat him some more just for good measure and leave him half dead beside the road. Then they flee, Jesus says. Now it turns out that not long after that, down that same road, came a priest. A man who incidentally, Mr. Religious Lawyer, looked a lot like you, all dressed up, nice striped tie, He came down that same road, he gets to the spot, he sees this bloodied pulp of a man beside the road and he ignores him, he steps to the other side, goes merrily on his way down the road. Curiously enough, says Jesus, pretty soon, here comes another man down the road. He played in the band at church. He was a Levite, dressed real nice. He got to that same spot in the road, sees the bloodied pulp of a man, and does exactly the same thing as the first one. He steps to the other side and continues merrily on his way down to Jericho. Not long after that, said Jesus. Wouldn't you know it? Down the road, here comes a Guatemalan. Shouldn't even be in our country. doesn't have the right religion, doesn't have the right clothes, doesn't speak our language right, but he gets to that place, sees the bloodied pulp of a man, his heart does something, and he gets off his animal, he gets down, he sees the man's near death. He goes to his saddlebag, pulls out a bottle of wine, comes back, uses the wine to clean the man's wounds, goes back to the saddlebags, gets olive oil, comes back, puts it on like a salve on the man's wounds. Then he picks him up, puts him on his own animal, leads the animal down to the inn, down to Jericho, gets down there, spends the night there taking care of the guy. In the morning, gets up, gets out his credit card, tells the, tells the, the night clerk to swipe it. He says, whatever it costs, it goes on my account. Then Jesus turns to the well-dressed religious lawyer and says, now, which of those, th- of those three do you think understood what the word placion means? The man, publicly embarrassed, says, well... I suppose it was the Guatemalan guy. Jesus said, yeah, I suppose so. Why don't you go and live like that? I think they could have accepted it had he been a good Brazilian. Or maybe even a Oh, let's not go there. (laughs) But a good Samaritan spit on the ground. Those mongrel half-breeds, those dirty idol-worshiping heretics who have been imported into our land, it was an impossible oxymoron. A good Samaritan. It's like a good demon. There is no such thing. Now, I'm sure you've noticed this because you've all preached and taught this passage and you've heard it referenced twice today already, or I guess once last night, once today. So I I think you've noticed this, but Jesus doesn't clearly answer the lawyer's question, does he? The question was, who is my neighbor? And Jesus' story is really more about what a neighbor does, what love looks like. Jesus' story doesn't define neighbor, it defines love as mercy, compassion for the victim. He's defining what a neighbor does. It's in verse 33, it says he took pity on him and you know the Greek says there he was deeply moved let me put it in the roller translation his heart did a flip-flop that's what happened when he saw that man. By placing the despised foreigner, as the one who had pity, Jesus is breaking new ground. Jesus is not accepting the placion answer of what a neighbor is. He's not letting us define neighbor as the one near us or the one like us. He's tearing down the preconception that we are only to love those like ourselves. So maybe we're okay. And, of course, he expands that in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise On the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. Final phrase. Bounces us back to Leviticus 19. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then come that series of 17 commandments that end with, but love your neighbor as yourself. So there's some connection, isn't there, in both Matthew and Leviticus. There's some connection between the loving of people and the holy God. So in Matthew, the paragraph ends with, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In Leviticus, the passage starts with, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Is this a strange coincidence? This is why Jesus would have been on TV a lot. He would have been on TV because his own people are angry and TV loves anger. They are angry because Jesus speaks against the natural. He speaks against ethnocentrism, their love for people like themselves and their hatred of those who were different. They would have been ma- would have been angry in Matthew 5 because he tells them not to love just their friends and neighbors, but also to love their enemies. They would have been angry in Luke 4 because he reminds them that Naaman was a Syrian and that Elisha went to the widow of Sidon, both of whom are foreigners, and they consequently try to hurl Jesus off a cliff. That's Spike TV. (laughs) They had substituted this, this national loyalty for the character of God they had lost touch with the heart of God their hearts were no longer moved they were angry because Jesus made it clear that they were not participating in the heart of God there's this progression in scripture then from love your neighbor to love your enemies why is that? Three hints. Be merciful just as your father is merciful, Luke 6. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy, Leviticus 19. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect, Matthew 5. Why the progression from love your neighbor to love your enemy? It's a progression from the best of humanity to the nature of God himself. we are invited to participate in God's character, his very nature. The absolute rock bottom essence of his character is love. Believing that you should love your neighbor, that's orthodoxy. Loving your neighbor, that's orthopraxy. Loving your enemy, now that's orthocardia. <laughs> Wesley prioritized orthocardia, the right heart, over orthodoxy, right belief, and orthopraxy, right behaviors. This is why we elevate, love God, love people. It's not just believe the right things. It's not even do the right things. It's share God's right heart. That's where we want to live. Share his heart beyond belief, beyond action, to identity, and that's what we're talking about tonight. My core identity, your core identity, what Jesus called the heart is what enables us to love people including our enemies now when Jesus said love your neighbor as yourself in Mark 12, Luke 10, Matthew 22 just getting the words right wasn't enough remember what he told the teacher earlier you are not far from the kingdom of God even when he had the words right getting the words right is a good thing but it's not the thing and actually doing it actually engaging in loving actions is not the thing either the thing itself is more than doing it. It's being it. It's when your heart just flip-flops. Without a script. Without a commandment. Because that's who you have become. Not just saying, love people, check but finding real, live, unlovable people. Sacrificing for them because of who we are. Because it just flows out of us. Isn't this great? I mean, the way we live is so different. Not natural, not normal. But isn't it lovely? Now, John Calvin believed in double predestination. God in his sovereignty has destined some for salvation and others are destined for damnation. Calvin went further than Augustine or Luther because they both believed in single predestination. That is, God has destined some for salvation and simply passed over the rest. Theological nerds call this preterition turn to your neighbor and say, preterition. You did it? I was kidding. <laughs> Thank you, though. So, preterition, preterition means to ignore. That's what it means, to ignore. So, in theology, preterition is the salvation of some and the ignoring of the rest. But can you imagine a God like that? A God who creates 7 billion people alive right now and is simply ignoring 2 billion of them? I say 2 billion because that's how many people alive right now have not heard of Jesus. Where is the God whose essence is love? Is the image of God in those 2 billion people really so faint as to be worth nothing? Can you imagine a God Who creates two billion people and then ignores them? Who simply passes them by like some great priest in the Good Samaritan story? Or might that God of love have called into being a people of love and charged them with the task of love by giving them hearts of love? Yes, he might have. So we reject the concept of double predestination as well as preterition, single predestination, because they demand something which we will not grant and the Bible will not grant. They demand a God who willfully ignores the lost, and that cannot be. And yet... My friends, aren't we preteritionists? We've just heartily agreed that God would not ignore two billion people, allowing them to slip into eternal darkness. Yet we do. Our hearts have recoiled. From the idea, it's repulsive, isn't it? The idea of a God who pays no attention to the starving bodies and souls of his own creation, yet we do. We'll talk all day long about the great needs of our cities, but year after year, decade after decade, we seem paralyzed. Is it fear? I don't know, but... Truth be told, we have not suffered so our neighbors might hear. I don't think we have. We have not abandoned our homes, our pleasures, so that our enemies might respond. We have not left our jobs and security that others might find healing for the brokenness. We have not even adequately bothered to support our own international church leaders through our, what we call the country support accounts. They're 37% committed right now. And I don't think it's that we don't care or that we're mean-spirited. This failure of love is a framework failure. It's a life plan failure failure. The priest and the Levite's problem as they walked down that road was that they were so dedicated to religious work that they forgot God's heart. That's why the Good Samaritan parable is followed immediately by the Mary Martha story. Martha's lifestyle was just like the priest and the Levites, all religious work and not enough. Now, one thing I've learned in these past eight years is that it's the bishop's fault. (laughs) I accept that. It is my fault that we haven't been able to communicate, seriously, that we have not been able to communicate the great and fruitful task of the church in a way that the church might respond. And it's my fault, I'm not being sarcastic, it is my fault that our number of missionaries has dropped. It is my fault that our great cities are largely untouched by us as a people. But if you'd be willing to own a slice of the responsibility with me, May I suggest that the central task of the church seemed to have been largely meaningless to the US church. I mean, the only way we can get people to go on missionary trips is if if they're short enough, safe enough, and cheap enough. Where are the young people who could be missionaries? They're paying off their college loans. Where are the middle aged who could be moving into the cities? They're paying off their mortgages and protecting their children. Where are the retired who could be disciplining? Dis, I'm sorry, discipling. <laughs> uh, never mind. The idea is where are people who could be discipling ethnic leaders? They're staying near their grandchildren. Love our neighbors just as we love ourselves? I'd be happy if we loved our neighbors as much as we love our pets. Love without without heart change? It's just a three-minute little ABBA song, jingle. My friends, if we're going to do this, we cannot continue as we are. Here's what it's going to take. It will require love with heart change to minister in the increasingly dangerous, hear this, the increasingly dangerous rural areas of America. It will require love with heart change to have financial systems that work for the immigrant churches. It will require love with heart change to boldly challenge the status quo of the cities. We must think large, friends. We must think tons rather than ounces. We must think St. Bernard's rather than schnauzers. It's not good, is it? But that's all I got. I'm sorry. You know, but think big. We need to think about space flights. We need to think about global circumnavigation. Think large. We cannot get there like this. It's going to require heart change. Churches of 20 have to stop absorbing our time because cities of millions are running out of time. Love demands that we move forward with dangerous plans and that we move forward sacrificially. Love, people. At some point, you know, because we've been to conferences before, that all the words of this week will become scrap paper or a link on an old email unless we respond with more than words, unless we respond with hearts made perfect in love, as is our Father's heart. Here's some good news. We are responding and are acting. You know those annual reports that we ask churches to fill out every year? They are filled with examples of churches that do sacrificially share God's heart of love for all people. And I know you. The three bishops, we know you. We're in your churches... I can vouch for what good people we are. I have no doubt that we love God. And in many places, our love for our neighbors is strong. But I also know, and I think you sense, that there are strong currents against us. There are strong currents of selfishness and limited vision that cloud our pure love for our neighbors and our enemies. And how do we get to that kind of love? Do we just grit our teeth, listen to a sermon, vow to love more and love harder, love deeper, and go have cake? Actually, it's easier than that. The Father's love is within us if we just let it overwhelm us. We've learned to stifle his impulse for extravagance. We don't need to ignore our own needs, and we don't need to f- go back to our sweets tonight and tower two or three and fashion little whips out of our towels and start beating ourselves as, you know, in some kind of penance. We are to love ourselves, aren't we? That's okay. And then love others. Uh, yet loving ourselves is not the same as indulging ourselves, there's a place there, there's a line there. And how do we get to that kind of love? We can't just resolve to love our neighbor and enemy and click our seatbelts and fly away from Orlando. That resolve will fade. In a few weeks, everything will revert to normal. The pressures of life, remember back home, those pressures will be a wet blanket on the spark of the Spirit that you are sensing in your heart right now. I mean, when people came in this property even, when they came in this building many of you have commented to me we knew something special was happening (laughs) it felt special so how can we say this this love thing, how can we say this in a way that scares us that shakes us, in foundational ways, so that we never drive to church again the same way we never reach for our wallet again the same way, but wait I refuse to try to scare us. We've been there before, haven't we? That's not good. The energy dissipates, the memory fades. We cannot be frightened or shamed into love. We can only be loved into love. Loved into love in the middle of our failures. That's the way he does it. Perhaps love is birthed in the failure of love around a courtyard fire where Peter stood. Or perhaps a thousand courtyard fires where we have all stood. Around the thousand fires where we have said with Peter, I never saw the guy before in my life. Or with the calloused priest, we've walked by the beaten pulp of a man. Could it be that we are the priest in the Good Samaritan story, being given a second chance? The thousand slips of faithlessness. The moment, you remember that moment? house, and we are left with the accusing and we are left with the accusing servants. So I appeal to those of us who are not completely satisfied with who we've been, it's time to stop failing. Out of those thousand fires of failure in Caiaphas' courtyards, out of the bitter weeping beyond the wall where Peter is changed, Something transformational happens, doesn't it? Something transformational happens to Peter. When Jesus' eyes locked locked on his in the echo of the rooster crow, some deep self-despair birthed a transformation. Not guilt, not shame or resolve. A simple, thorough transformation. Both... Judas and Peter betrayed Jesus that night. But Peter's betrayal led to a new place. Peter's betrayal led to a grief. And the grief so deep led to a repentance. And a repentance led to a new creature. That's what we want, isn't it? No preacher can lure us, trick us into loving in, in, in that crazy sold out way that marks perfect love. And you remember in scripture that the stories of failure are the seedbed of that kind of love, whether it's Judah, or David, or Jonah, or Naomi, like Peter, most, have, most of them walked a, a zigzag path. With moments of failure that birthed transformation. So I can't can't guilt us into loving. Only a transformation can do that. I can't convince us to love by painting some great picture of what the future is going to look like. Only a self-disgust, only a what a worm as I, only a Romans 7 battle royale with self can lead us to that place of self-abandon and repentance. And that's where we can take our eyes off ourselves long enough to see others and sacrificially love them. We can only love, really, when God's character is invited to overtake our own character. Now, last night, we heard Bishop Kendall talk with us about loving God and being loved by God. Loving God was purposefully placed before loving people because there is a sequence here. There is an essential sequence here. It's useless for us to try to drum up more love for people who are, after all, obnoxious, arrogant, narcissistic, and sometimes downright evil. But here's what works. The only thing that works. When God's love overflows out of our lives then we can love other people out of that abundance. That's the only thing that works. When God's love fills me and flows out of me, I can love other people and not before. I have no factory of love inside. I can't make it. I can only share it. It's like We're not cul-de-sacs. You know, pretty little places without an outlet. We are busy thoroughfares, avenues, streets. We are through streets for God's love. This is the essential sequence. God's love shed abroad in our hearts. Romans 5, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Leviticus 20). Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5. Do you see the connection? Holiness, perfection, pure love. It's only available to us by the restoration of the image of God in us. A restoration of his essential character, which is love. And then we love. Then it's easy. And then, in fact, you can't stop it. I apologize for grinning so much, but I mean, I'm just overtaken by this thought. I'm overtaken by this experience. The Free Methodist Church, some of you may remember, used to have a slogan. It was called, We are the church that cares. But I'm gonna say, I think we have to be way better than caring I think we have to be better, even than loving our our neighbors. We must be a people who love our enemies, who participate in God's characters in ways that amaze and astound our communities. Do you remember what you were going to do when you grew up? Remember that dream. Well, I've got another idea. Come and die here. Do you remember what you're planning to do next week? Come and die here. Do you remember your church programs? come and die here. I think you see where I'm leading you. I think you realize where this goes. What we have traditionally called this pure love for God, neighbor, and enemy, we've called it sanctification, holiness. We've called it wholeheartedness (laughs) wholeheartedness that marks us as transformed followers of Jesus and how does that happen there is a total death total death to sin and an entire renewal in the love and image of God the renewal depends on death so come die here today Charles Wesley, the hymn writer, called this death to be dissolved in love. In the third stanza of the hymn, Jesus hath died that I might live. It says, my longing heart is all on fire to be dissolved in love. Come be dissolved here today. I have to confess to you, I'm not praying for God to send revival because I think he's already sent it. It's right here. It's in the room. He has done everything necessary for revival among us right here, right now, tonight. It looks to me like God has probably done his part. And he's just waiting for a people to be dissolved in his great heart. There is much more to following Jesus than pleading his blood to forgive us of our sins. Much more. Following Jesus means putting off the old nature. Remember nature? and putting on his nature, becoming like him, being transformed by the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit, the wholeness of the Spirit, is evidenced by pure love for God, our neighbor, and our enemy. So we can't get to a whole church without being whole people, and we can't be whole people without God's character, his love, bathing us anew. May I suggest we do not need a grand plan from the bishops. We don't need new strategies from headquarters for us to move into every nook of America and the globe. We simply need, we simply need Free Methodists who are pure love drenched. To soak in love. For Free Methodists to move forward in the true love of our neighbors and enemies, we must experience what we ask every ordinance as they become a member of the annual conference. Here's the question we ask them. Uh, We say, do you experience purity of heart and life and empowerment for service through the fullness of the Spirit? Well, do you? It's no simpler, no more complicated than that. Purity of heart and life and empowerment for service through the fullness of the Spirit. We must be a people fuller of the Spirit than we are of ourselves. And you know what manifestation of the Spirit I'm longing for? The manifestation of love for our neighbor and enemy. (laughs) That's what I want. Could you stand with me this evening? After a moment, I want to lead us in a simple prayer of brokenness, a prayer of death to self, a prayer of the emptying of ourselves, and a surrender to the fullness of the Spirit so that we might love our enemies. And I know you can pray where you are. And I know it's hard to get out from these tables. But might we as a people gather courage from coming forward together I would invite you to come forward be Peter in the courtyard broken in our failures come die here come be dissolved in love here leave off being a preteritionist ignoring the lost let every temper word and action be transformed that we may love people We'll sing together even as you're coming. Let me lead us in a prayer. Father, you can see your people here. You can see we readily respond to your spirit. And Father, we're asking you to do a new thing among us not because of our resolve, but just because we're transformed by you. So we come here tonight to be dissolved in your great heart and we know that this may mean, no, we know it will mean that this orthocardia will mean that this transformation will mean and Father, only you can fill in the blanks. In a, in a loving dialogue with each one of us, I can't presume to say what it will mean, but I know it will mean death to self. And so together we lay ourselves upon this altar tonight and we say, have your way with us. That image which has been in us, but sometimes been just a little bit blanketed. Father, we give you free reign in this moment. In the name of Lord Jesus, we give you free reign in each one of our lives. Do what you will with us. Transform us. Your spirit in each heart cleanse us. Let us be formed in your character, Lord. Lord, this is a special moment. Your church bows before your throne this evening. And now we ask you to stand and stretch out your hand to do your transformation in us. Even now as we wait upon you. Even now, Lord, your people wait before you. You move across our hearts. The finger of the Spirit reaches deep, penetrates between the bone and muscle. You reach into the deepest parts of our lives. You are healing right now. You are bringing wholeness right now. You are bringing visions of the future right now. You are doing a new thing among us right now. You are painting a picture of the future right now for us, Lord. Lord, open a new way for us. Open a highway in the desert for us. We want to be the ones preparing the way of the Lord making every high place low, making the crooked places straight. Let us be those messengers, Lord. Transform us. Do your work among us. Let us be dissolved in love. We die here now and raise us up alive in you. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus the Christ. Amen and amen. Amen.